Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Belvin. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure. I know we've got to chat a few times over the past few months. And uh, I thought you had a fun story to share tackling legal tech in Indonesia, which is uh, an interesting combination and it would be a fun one to discuss. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So Melvin, for those who don't know you yet, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining the room. My name is Malfin. Basically, I am the uh, CEO and also the co-founder of uh, Justica. Justica is an early-stage startup, basically a legal services marketplace, aiming to improve access to justice in Indonesia. So basically, the way my career has started is um, I've been starting my career in the corporate world. So I was in the strategy realm back then in a telco company in Indonesia. And then long story short, after all the journey to find a better way to really find and realize the impact I've been meaning to have, I end up in the legal tech world. Awesome, Melvin. And just let's go back to the beginning. So starting out your work and career in Indonesia, tell us more about that. What was it like? Oh, yeah. I started my career in the corporate strategy. So I was a strategy analyst in a way back then, the biggest telco company in Indonesia. And I find myself really missing something. There is always something that is lacking in a way because it's just for me personally, to be honest, in terms of slides, strategy decks, things like that. But don't get me wrong. I mean, people should take pride and really should should be a proud of corporate strategy work, management consulting work, but it's just hard for me to connect the dots between the decks I made and what's happening on the ground. And then I, I cannot really find the the sense of impact that I can recognize myself into in my first career. And back then, an opportunity comes up. So Indonesia got its first professional background president, President Joko Widodo. and he had created a lot of shift also focusing in the state-owned enterprises. The career or the recruitment dogma has been changed. Usually back then, people, it's not the best or the the most merit-based career ladder, if you may, but they've been trying to put a lot of professionals in state-owned enterprises. And so I joined state-owned enterprises, which was basically trying to improve one of his campaign promises, which is because, well, Indonesia has 17,000 islands and we have more oceans than lands. And so they've been trying to really improve the way ports and sea logistics being worked on. And so that is my first leadership experience, to be honest, because I really jumped into a, an environment that is very, very different. It's very full of bureaucracy and I get to take 
big decisions. Although I'm still very uh, junior back then, I can hire people, I can lead teams, and I set up processes for key management to really do business transformation initiatives. And But then the bureaucracy get the best out of me. In a way, I, I get really bogged down with because the leadership changes and so on. And so I've been promising myself to find an organization which has no bureaucracy. And back then, Startup was one of the company that promises so. And so I joined a startup whereby I, I launched my first product there, which is an AI company launching basically a Google for lawyers in Indonesia. Let's talk about the bureaucracy there, right? So you joined in wide eye, bushy tail, that's what they call it. But, you know, very like optimistic, right? About changing things. So what happened? Like when you say bureaucracy, was it because like people were slow or is it because you had to talk to a lot of people? Like what does it mean to be bureaucratic? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Well, I wouldn't say people are slow. People really, especially Indonesians, they really... To be honest, I believe at heart, they really want to make good changes and they really want to make positive changes back then. I feel also that that in the state-owned enterprise. But then people get very, very scared because when you try to change things, you also has the ability to, in a way, hurt people. Or for example, in the port company, or whereby we, we try to make a change, we implemented a very simple accounting system whereby it takes away the chances for the... Um, so you basically has to, has to pay some money in order to get your container as a goods owner to be handled firstly, right? And so when, when you implement an accounting system, those chances to get additional money gets thrown out in a way. And in a way, the corruption is, is rooted all the way through. But then these people who really want to make a change is tends to get bogged down because they would find a way to jeopardize and to quote-unquote criminalize what you're trying to do. For example, the easiest part is, is the procurement, right? So when you, when you want to implement one accounting system, you said it's, it's something that is very common. Every, for example, every port use it. It's a world-class thing. But then you really want things to move fast. So you, you directly appoint this vendor, right? And so people that don't like you in a way would, would then just say that it's not properly auctioned, things like that. So people are really fearing those kind of things. And so when you do procurement, for example, you have to find the most neutral opinion. For me, I have to go to to the the country's universities, the country's academics, academicians to create one uh, lengthy assessment to basically prove that it's neutral and it's very justified to pick a vendor. And one month project turns into a six months or one year project. Wow. Thanks for sharing honestly about that. Okay, so you're frustrated. You Basically what you're saying is people are fast, but people are afraid. And then that's causing things to slow down. You know, that happens a lot, right? So like, you know, everything slows down. People are checking, trying to be neutral or whatever it means. Did you know that you wanted to be a founder then? Or was it, did you already know that you wanted to build something new? Or were you more like starting to be like, okay, I'm going to be more interested in joining another company like Databot? So no, to be honest, I just really need to find an avenue whereby I feel that it's the most effective 
and the quickest way to deliver what I've been meaning to do, uh, basically trying to make an, a better, yeah, it, it may sound cliche, but to make an impact to recognize for myself in a way. So it turns out that the as the story goes, the easiest way is to be a, a founder. Right. So let's talk about your time. So you joined Datobot at that time, right? So how did you get started there? Yeah. After I joined the uh, state-owned enterprise and in a way, I got fed up with the bureaucracy. Also, there's an opportunity because Databot just do their first fundraising. And a lot of the team in the state-owned enterprise, my team is actually BCG people in a way. And so there's the investor who invested in Databot back then is also someone that is quite closely related to BCG. And so he's looking for someone to basically be the CEO office, if you may, of Databot. And long story short, I just clicked with with Reggie back then, the founder. And I joined as the, I think, one of the first hires ever since they raised the fund. Hmm, amazing. So when you say click, what does it mean to click? So then you started ideating together. What does it mean to start that work together? Ah, uh, yeah. I think Reggie also has the basic fundamental, in a way, purpose to create something that is really disruptive or something that is improving a lot or moving a big needle in the society. And when when he sees that I had to jump from a corporate to an uncharted career in steroid enterprise. And him also, because he, he, he was really living an, a really nice life as, a, I think, an expat salesman at uh, General Electrics. And he, he started, he jumped to create also his, his own company. And I think both those things created, in a way, a purpose alignment in what we both are trying to achieve what was it like setting up at that time, founding something from scratch in legal tech? Uh, <laughs> it is really bloody, Jeremy. I think I wasted a lot of my angel's money <laughs> when we started this, uh, the legal tech company. So one of the big hurdles for me is uh, personally, back then, the biggest team that I led was only five five engineers trying to create a new product and is partnering with back then uh, Hukum Online. So it's quite, because in a way, the business side of things is is quite secure because I am building a product inside or secured by Databot, which is Regis platform. That's, that's my only experience building or developing a product. But then I jumped off creating something from scratch and so there's so many things that I just didn't know. It took a lot of time and a lot of uh, money to basically pay for, for the mistakes that I've made, including taking so much time, making decisions, being not assertive in making feedbacks or firing people. And also because we had a really nice funding and uh, really nice uh, angel support back then. It's also, my back is not really against the wall in a way. And so I think I become quite complacent with the growth because it's not 
ten times. It's not five times. It's a plateauing, but I don't really take the hard decisions to to make it grow again. Right, and then well, that's common, right? For every founder, you're kind of starting out. I mean, I was there, right? You're you're just trying to figure out stuff, right? You're trying to understand a problem. So I wouldn't be so hard on yourself on that, like that. So I guess now we're looking at this, like, what about legal tech was interesting to you to tackle in Indonesia? Ah, uh, yeah, this is just something I, I believe it's it's just a combination of uh, my idealistic goals in a way, and also my quote unquote my vanity recognition because back then I was just because everybody in my circle was either working for for Gojek or Traveloka or the sorts, right? So I think that I need to, I want to be involved or to create something that is not transport related and that is not e-commerce. And on the second hand, I really also think that a lot of smart people has also been working on and, also, uh, and has been pushing on helping Indonesians to travel, helping Indonesians to transport, helping Indonesians to shop. But nobody has really thought about or do a lot of things in in the legal industry, although legal has been also one of the basic human rights. Well, the government has, has been obliged to set aside budgets to provide legal aid for, for marginalized people in a way, but nobody in the tech players has already done something on that. And if you also look at the statistics, 120 million people at any given moment is in Indonesia is experiencing significant legal issues. But when it comes to empowering them, fighting them to, to seek justice, uh, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. And so 70% of, out of them just give up. And so I find this as cause to empower and to push myself to enter the legal tech why does why do these problems exist so i understand the problems exist but why would you say they exist from your perspective yeah so i believe there are three main pain points so the first one is that the information being is just the asymmetry of information for for people when they look for legal legal services and legal help right it's just like healthcare in a way because you come into the professional or the doctor or the lawyer not knowing what to expect. You don't know when you get sick in a way, you wouldn't know the cost that you would need to basically put forth until you are completely cured and also the time. But in a sense, healthcare is somewhat that is quite well informed because there are enough articles and people tend to talk about it a lot lah. People, especially mothers and housewives, I believe, are sharing tips when their child gets sick, for example. But the information flow just doesn't happen when it comes to legal because it's something that is very secretive and is very, very private in people's lives because you're talking about matrimony, uh, law here, you're talking about divorce, you're talking about inheritance, something that is very private in your family. You just don't want to share it to people. So the information just the information flow doesn't happen, but the exposure in the media and all the branding that is put forward by the media about lawyers is always something that is quite negative in a way because lawyers is always portrayed 
with someone that is very very uh, slick, rich, and so they tend to quote unquote perceptively cheat on you. And so these people, before they even try to seek help, they just quits because it's just they are too afraid to take the first step forward. So how does uh, Justica play a role in that? I mean, because I know that you're tackling that problem along those dimensions. I guess, is it because you're helping to humanize some of the legal services? You're helping it more transparent. How does Justica play a role in that? Yeah, so basically what we're trying to do is to not to undermine the lawyer profession. We try to create a way to easily access lawyers as easy as getting a taxi driver like Gojek in a way. Because... Simply, you just go inside the website, tell a bit about your story, I mean, two or three sentences, and then you pay a really decent amount of money, $2, to just chat with a lawyer within uh, one minute. You can actually get a curated lawyer based on what you've shared in the description. And uh, the best lawyer, meaning the most available one and the, the ones that is matching with what you're classification of the problem with the expertise will will be given to you within uh, one minute. We've seen some of these like robo lawyers kind of like come out in the States. Are you inspired by them or is it something that, how do you compare and contrast their approach versus your approach? That's a very interesting question. So at least for Indonesians and for our users, there's a lot of an element of uh, having someone to talk to with, with these illegal issues, right? Because most of the time, it's about your family. And so it's a lot more valuable when you're able to tell the story to a real person, to a lawyer, and to chat. So we've been also exploring the path of creating chatbots and, and um, things like that. But the experience and the trust is just is just not the same. Yeah, I get it. So... Like it's a different trust level, I think, as a consumer. And your tests didn't show like a good, ro- the true robo as a front. It doesn't look good, basically. This is not accepted by the market. Yeah, true. So you've been working on this. What surprised you as you worked as a founder? Like, So before a founder, I don't know, maybe you open up the news and then, you, know, you see all these YC people and everything and then... Now that you're a founder yourself, like what surprised you about being a founder that you didn't expect? The price meaning the sacrifices, in a way. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of sacrifices that you made. I mean, yeah, for me, I think sacrifices I mean, I was like, I definitely sacrificed my health. <laughs> <laughs> I gained, I don't know if I told you, I gained 20 kilograms over two startups. I went from fit to overweight to obese, <laughs> medically <laughs> obese. And I was like, uh, and then after that, thankfully over the, ever since I kind of like sold the last company, I've been able to lose 10 kilograms during the lockdown and eating healthy and everything. But I was like, whoa, like, obviously I think it's not just weight, right? But it's like everything associated that let me gain that weight, right? Like eating a lot, stress eating, not sleeping well, things like that, right? So anyway, that's for me. How about you? What what do you think are the sacrifices that you see out there for founders? Yeah, I think for myself, uh, one of the major things that I think I have, the price that I, that I would have to pay. And also, to be honest, I a lot of credit 
have to be put on my family and and my wife to be honest for it because the sacrifice that I think that I made is mostly also on the monetary gain or the salary that you make as a founder in a way because when things go sour to be honest for Justica back then I think a while back before the pandemic for me I really need to convince my board that it is something that is believable this is something that can grow significantly and sometimes words decks numbers projections just just wouldn't cut it right and so you just have to show your skin as well and so I've taken salary cuts when I was just a newlywed back then. And uh, there's all, a lot of mortgages, things like that. And so our lifestyle has to adjust as well. But as long as your family, your wife really supports and believe in what you do, I guess at the end of the day, you just pull through. Yeah, you said something that's very true, right? Which is when in the early days of being a founder, you have no salary, right? <laughs> Which is... It's hard to explain because I think whenever you're working full-time, you get a salary. So you always have that stability, right? But it's not just the not having money, right? Which we obviously have a time. But it's also the uncertainty of when you get a salary. That's tough as well. And then there's the uncertainty over like things can go bad, right? Even worse, right? (laughs) So (laughs) Yeah, and imagine the, (laughs) the uncertainty arises when you just got married. And somewhere along the line, turns out your wife is pregnant and the uncertainty increases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, my wife was always watching me just like struggle in the early days. And I remember there was a time when we were going to close, I think, our A round. But, you know, it's like always touch and go, right? And then I remember it was right before our wedding. And I told her, I said, hey, I don't know if we're able to close this Series A. <laughs> and then she was like, oh, what are you trying to say? And I said, yeah, you know, I might be, I said, well, I'm going for this wedding thing, but if I don't close this, then I'm going to be like firing Lin laying off people to cut or burn, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> before the wedding. So I may not, maybe, and I was like, you know, I was like wishy-washy, right? It's like, I may not be really present during the wedding, blah, blah, blah. She was like, let me say, Jeremy, if you, if you're trying to reschedule the wedding, <laughs> like you're not going to get another shot at this wedding. <laughs> <laughs> not anytime soon so just go get the money right anyway so so I just had to make sure I hustled very hard and I think like literally like the day before the rehearsals I finally you know signed the, the term sheet and everything so then I was like okay be it. the process is moving along so thank goodness yeah wow wow yeah how about you Melvin like who are you thankful for to have supported you this, during this journey so far Yeah, I think I've mentioned a lot about uh, my family and all the understandings that they they have basically made to sacrifice also their priorities and also their time. But also the bosses that I've been working for that has particularly Reggie and Databot because they really made me in a way realize because... As Asians, I think, Jeremy, being in an Asian family, you don't get to make a lot of decisions in a way because a lot of important decisions are usually controlled and also made by your father in a way. And so I have grown to be a, a quite a, in a way, insecure person when it comes to big decisions. And working for, for Reggie made me realize that 
when you're allowed to make decisions with big risks and it turns out to be okay, it boosts really my confidence towards my decision making and 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 towards myself. And that's uh, one of the, I think, the person that I need to be thankful most. Do you feel like you get a lot of support? I'm just talking out loud, obviously, from other founders in the Indonesian ecosystem. I mean, I'm just like asking out loud because back in Boston, obviously there was a co-working space out of Harvard. So we were, a lot of us were like <laughs> cracking jokes and being very like happy and also being very hardworking at like 1 a.m. <laughs> you know? So I remember there was this guy I used to work with uh, and then I always joked that we were like, we called ourselves the Midnight Riders. I mean, you know, it was just a nice way for me to sound cool <laughs> and say that we're working late and call ourselves that. But do you feel like that you have that sense of community or are there founders that you like to hang out with? Yeah, of course. In a way, uh, there's two points in it. I believe that when you reach out to the founders, most founders are really, really, really open and they really want to help you in a way. Because I believe, and I also right now also feel because it's when you hear others stories, others problems, in a way, one, you, you're more thankful and you don't feel lonely. And so every founders that I've been reaching out to has always been very supportive and put really significant and tangible support. That's one. But then number two is that the community is just not that easy to find in a way. You don't yet have this so-called well-established platform whereby you can seek support and so you just need to get in the circle first and grow from there to get to the founders and and also number three i think the the ecosystem is still in its infancy and so if you want to seek other support than just mentorship or advice and you talk about angel investors in uh, people believing in you giving financial supports as well the series a or the series b or people the founders that has exited in indonesia is just not that much whereby probably in in the us i mean a lot of people has made a lot of money and so the the flywheel has has turned around right yeah i think it's definitely true but things are changing so i think two things come out right one is like founders are always happy to help other founders because we know how crazy hard the whole system is, right? <laughs> we just know how how insane it is and how tough it is. So we're always happy to help one another. But also at the same point of time, it's, there's a certain gravity to the ecosystem, right? Which is that the people 10 years ago in Singapore and in Indonesia probably had an even tougher time having even less community, right? But hopefully 10 years in the future, ecosystems will be much stronger to support future founders in Singapore and Indonesia. Yeah. True. Melvin, I was kind of, kind of curious a little bit. So as you, you know, build up legal tech and everything, who do you think are the important players in the field? Uh, in Southeast Asia or Indonesia? Uh, Indonesia. Well, if you go into Crunchbase and look the startups that has been, in a way, uh, raised money or invested, you can only see, I think, three or four startups in the legal tech area if you take it as one of the benchmark to be somewhat important in a way. Number one is Hukum Online, 
which has started, I think, on the early dot com boom, early 2000. That's one. Basically, the uh, value that they've been giving is in terms of legal research, basically helping lawyers to find regulations, court decisions to aid their legal analysis. Secondly, well, it's Justica. And number three, there's this uh, startup, also a legal tech, quite similar to Justica, actually two of those. But Justica currently is focusing on retail and consumers. Both of them are focusing on a different segment, which is SMEs called Contrah Hukum. And the other is I, the name, I think, my law or logo, things like that. But because it changed, I think. And it was invested by one of Philippines conglomerate, the UMG Idea Lab. When you're thinking about, uh, I guess, I guess the brainstorming of you here, right? So, you know, legal tech, big problem, lots of spending, very inefficient. So I think it makes sense, right? From a market. Do you think it's like a, do you think it's like a winner takes all? Or do you think it's going to be more like people take off different verticals of the legal tech system? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. It's very hard. Well, I do think it's a winner-takes-all market, to be honest, because what all the players, excluding Hukum Online in Indonesia, because Hukum Online is focusing on servicing uh, lawyers and not the end users, if I may, the others that are focusing on the end users, SMEs, individuals, things like that, are really solving the generic problems, meaning trying to help people, to empower people, to push people to just take the first step and the first leap to take care of the legal problem, right? The one that when you then crack this formula, the way to really solve and to remove all barriers for people to access legal services, then it can only be a winner-takes-all market because all users and all people will basically flock there because it doesn't matter uh, if, if you have problems in matrimony law, if you have problems in SME law, the, the basic first barriers or the entry barriers remains the same. People don't know what to do. People are very confused. That's, I think, one of the drivers that, that would create this as the, a winner-takes-all market. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think trust is a big one, right? So whether they trust you on this or that. And of course, we'll find out whether they, if they trust you on one type of law, whether they'll trust you in different types of law, right? So that'll be interesting to see as it turns out. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, true. Yeah. It looks like there's some people who are questioned, so feel free to raise your hands. Uh, we are recording this for the podcast. So feel free, if you want to raise your hand, we can ask some questions of just Melvin. But I guess my last question for you, Melvin, uh, before we go for questions, is if you could go back 10 years in time, what advice would you give yourself? 10 years in time? <laughs> oh, yeah. Where were you, Melvin, 10 years ago? 10 years ago, 2010, I think I'm still yeah, in, a, in the telco or in ITB. I think one of the biggest advice that I would give myself is, well, to basically just just trust in yourself. I mean, take the plunge to, and things will take care of itself. Be less insecure, take more risks. Uh, you don't have to be someone that is that needs to get the typical career of 
being in a big corporate, a nice cozy job, a stable one, you know, taking the risk is also, and taking the leap somewhat would reward you more at the end of the day. Awesome. Thanks, Melvin. So Julia, feel free to, I think anybody who has questions for Melvin, feel free to raise your hands. Uh, we are recording for a podcast, so uh, just hits up. So jo, Julia, go ahead. Yeah. So Melvin, you mentioned earlier that a lot of consumers, their first reaction is just confusion and don't know where to seek help. I'm very inspired by your collaboration with the Asia Foundation on the Connexi platform to really reach out to women who are uh, experiencing domestic violence and and then connecting them to all of these helps, including legal. And my question is more on just Indonesia, like 101. Like, how do you generate the consumer education given the diverse, heterogeneous market or, or where the consumer are at? in terms of their legal awareness. Ah, thank you, Julia, for the question and the participation. Thanks so much for recognizing and taking the time to look into Justica and what we've been doing in the works of uh, and the partnership with the Asia Foundation. I think Justica is really blessed in the customer education sense because our strategic partner is uh, Hukum Online. And so th- these Indonesians, when, when they face legal issues, right, they, first things first, they, they, re- they really don't want to talk to someone that is not trustworthy, that is not a family, that is not friends. And so while they're looking for word of mouth references, they will basically Google and they will look for answers in the internet. And We've been blessed with the strategic partnership with Hukum Online because Hukum Online has created contents for the last, I think, 17 years, basically acquiring questions from people in the internet. Any questions ranging from fundraising, when, when you talk about IPO or capital market, the complicated ones, very simplistic ones like when you're when you have, for example, a chicken, for example, and uh, your chicken, when you're in a village, uh, goes outside your home and um, create a mess in your neighbor, then what's the legal standing of it? And these questions are all answered by Okum Online's team, and they have this, this 17 years worth of content. It's already something that is quite high in terms of SEO ranking. And this is the way that we have been trying to reach these people, the people who need help, because it's their first aid. It gives them the generic information of what they're trying or what they're facing currently. And when they need more specific questions, then our chat platform comes and they just need to pay like $2 to uh, share their specific pain points. So. Uh, long answer short, we basically use contents. No, yeah. So just to recap, you're saying that you have a platform that has this very rich inquiry Q&A already curated and, and seems like the SEO, uh, there's also consumer who are already knowing and understanding this is the source to go for. 
My follow-up question is, you mentioned this consultation causes $2. I'm just curious, what is the relationship or what is the perception of attorney in Indonesia of legal tech? Do they see this as a friend or a foe? Ah, interesting take. So I look at your bio a bit, Julia. I think you're you're in healthcare, right? So I think you can also relate to this. Actually, the way they see Justica and the legal tech marketplace, if I may, is basically something that is, I'm not going to say against, but is quite in the gray area if you talk about the code of ethics of the profession. Because doctors, lawyers, and notaries are not allowed to do marketing and to do ads or promotions, right? But then on the other side, a lot of law firms, a lot of lawyers also put up social media accounts. They created uh, YouTube contents. They even become influencers in the social media, right? And so if you talk about doctors, they're quite receptive because there's Halodoc and so on and so forth. But uh, lawyers, they, they still see this as something that is quite in the gray area. But for people who already more open-minded or already res- uh, is quite receptive with the digital interaction and all those things, they take it as an avenue to, uh, one, to make more revenue because in a way they don't need to go to coffee shops. They don't need to spend time to transport or to push marketing fee because they when lawyers meet their clients in coffee shops and and the likes all those are marketing costs right and not all leads converted but when you talk about legal tech marketplaces like Justica you just need to activate your applications and the leads coming in continuously and they're paying from day 1 from the consult uh, in the chat. And so take it as an avenue to get more revenue in a new way, whereby they are not allowed to do marketing. No, yeah, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallel between legal and healthcare where this direct-to-consumer marketing is not allowed. Yeah. Um, But it seems that what I'm learning from you is you're basically grabbing the early adopter who are seeing this uh, as an opportunity and and kind of like gaining their buy-in to really generate the supply. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, you got it perfect. So we only started with only five lawyers back then, only the early adopters. And until now, it's been growing until now, thankfully. Roughly how many lawyers are there? Now today, currently we have around. If you talk about the active lawyers, we have around fifty lawyers. But in the database, the lawyers that has been uh, involved in Justica is around eight to nine hundred lawyers. Yeah, that's great. It just keeps going, right? And then those who are active will get more value. Consumers will get more access, and then the flywheel keeps going for a two-seller marketplace like this. Yeah, awesome. Melvin, I think I want to ask one last question is like, when you see this continuing, I think you're going to benefit and help a lot of people, right? Because, you know, the people who are, the people who could afford lawyers before this, before Jessica came along, will continue to be able to afford lawyers, right? But you're really helping people who don't know how to access lawyers or can't really afford 
lawyers because you're helping them get access and get a competitive and transparent quote, right? So how do you see the vision for Justica over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, there's two points to the question, Jer. And thank you for the question. It's It got me rethink the company as well. First one is that currently we've been focusing ourselves in trying to improve the way the lawyers and the users meet, right? But then when they currently they're meeting and they're talking, chatting inside the platform, we have so many different verticals coming in and it transforms from an access problem towards a service delivery problem. And so I envision uh, Justica to be more than just a meeting place, but also a service delivery place. In a way, an alternative dispute resolution method. Because to give you an example, where if you talk about inheritance law, most conflicts comes from the ones in the family that, that really feels that it's not fair in terms of the, the division of the, of the estate, right? If you talk to conventional lawyers, then they would suggest you to go into court and battle it out and to have a, a, a court-rectified decision towards the, the division of the estate. But if you really look at the fundamental problems, uh, most cases can be solved by lawyers giving a simple legal opinion or document that is clear in terms of the division based on uh, regulations and all the calculations because we're in a Muslim country and uh, the Muslim, the Islamic uh, religion really arranges and really divides. It's really straightforward and it's really clear the way it divides the estate. It can be brought by the person to the family and they can discuss it with the family. And it can be solved without even going to court. So it's a new way to basically resolve your dispute. I, I see this as, in a way, an alternative to a cheaper and more economical alternative and more peaceful, if you may, way to resolve your dispute other than court. And secondly, to extend it more than just lawyers because we've been experiencing the troublesome pain point if you look for legal professionals and legal help is not only concerning lawyers, but also if you talk about notary and if you talk about tax consultants, things like that, it's they also have the same problems and they have been inquiring about those as well, the customers. And so we've been meaning to also add people or uh, service providers that will help those things as well. Amazing, Melvin. I... I think you're doing something that's really important and I it's hard to explain because it's like obviously as a founder, I think you and I are talking about the startup, right? <laughs> the team, right? And it's tough and hard and everything. But I think as a, someone who's also been in, in the social sector and seeing how many people just don't have access to legal services, I think you're doing something very special by bringing in private capital, I guess, with a startup methodology, but building up for people who will never know that you're a startup, I guess. I'll never know that you're working your ass off. But they're going to get a lawyer that they can trust, right? In a process that's probably tough for them. So I just want to say, like, like hats off to you on this. Well, thank you so much. All right. So 
with that, I'm going to wrap up the show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining, everyone. I hope uh, you get a lot of insights and enjoy it as much as I do. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.